thank you all for being here today. I wanted it'll it'll become a little bit more clear about why I chose that hymn in, in just a few minutes. But I want you to know that even though that was a that was a hymn I remember singing like in the fall around Thanksgiving stuff like that, and and people always think of it in terms of like the you know the the bringing in the sheaves at harvest time and and in October that time of year. That's actually not what that hymn is about. It's actually kind of a secret code for something that we're going to be talking about today. And we'll be, we'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. Um, but I just want to say, again, thank you so much for being here today. I know it was an effort to be here today. Now, I will say that I got a text from, uh, from one of my associate pastors last night who said, I think we need to come up with a plan for church on Sunday. I said, I have a plan. We're having church on Sunday. I come from a tradition of hard shell Presbyterians that believe that, that church is like football. You play in any weather. And especially given the fact that, you know, that we are now online and all that kind of thing. Nobody has any excuse to be to miss church for any reason. As a matter of fact, you remember last Sunday or Sunday before last, I actually showed a video of a friend of mine in his fishing boat watching the service while he and his daughter were out fishing. So there's no excuse anymore. So whether you're here in person or online, use your wisdom. You know, COVID's not the only dangerous thing out there. Ice and sleet are pretty bad too, but but uh, you know, un unless the Lord lays me low between now and then, I'll be here on Sunday, and we'll be, and we'll be doing something, even if it's just me and my iPhone or however that works. Um, but nevertheless, I, I, I do need to confess a few things. I, I, I am tremendously skeptical about snow days. I, I have not trusted weathermen uh, for for years. I, I kind of trust. I put weathermen and politicians on about the same level of trustworthiness. And that's because when I was a little kid growing up in South Carolina, every year, several times, they would say that it's going to snow tomorrow. Kids get ready. You're not going to have to go to school. And I would get so excited. And then the next morning, no snow. And I ugh, came to just loathe the weatherman when that happened. Now, I think our technology is a little bit better, but I'm still very, very skeptical about that. And I always wonder, of course, we were not a big snow area. We were a big ice area. And so they would always say whenever the inclement weather came in that you had to go out and you had to make sure you got to the grocery store to get your eggs and your milk. And I always wonder, <laughs> why eggs and milk? Is it that all of a sudden people, it starts snowing and people feel like it's omelet time? Why, what is it, why, does, why is that your survival food? If we're, we're trapped for days, but we've got our eggs and milk. I don't know why that is. But anyway, for, for whatever reason, um, we're going to have, we'll have church one way or another on Sunday. As a matter of fact, I remember when I was a pastor in a rural, a little country church up in rural Virginia, we had a huge, about, a, about an eight inch snowstorm overnight. And there was enough of, a, there was enough clearance that I was able to get my little Honda from my house to the church just to see what the state of things was. So I, so I kind of fishtailed my way there. What was usually about a five minute drive turned into about an hour ordeal, but I kind of fishtailed my way there and I got to the church and I was looking, I was like, well, that's pretty bad. You know, the, the, the parking lot was, was full of snow and, and, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, as I was standing there just kind of contemplating what we might do, one of my elders drove up in, you know, in a huge, you know, huge four by four SUV and another one drove up, another one drove up in his truck and another. And before long, pretty much our whole session, all of our elders were there and a few others, longtime members of the church. And they were all sitting around and we were looking at it and they said, well, what do you think, Bob? I said, I said, I said I think we, we should have church. They said, we can't have church. Nobody can get here. And I'm looking around at this group of about 15 guys. I'm like, Y'all made it. <laughs> You're here. That's enough. It says we're two or more gathered in my name. Then uh, one of our, another one of our members who actually happened to be a farmer and had a snowplow, he showed up and he was able to clear the parking lot. So that was, that was fun. But at this point, um, plan on, we will be, we will be having church one way or another, definitely online, um, probably here. Again, I'm just a little skeptical. I have hope in the Lord, but all others pay cash. So anyway, um, 
let's talk about uh, let's talk about Revelation this morning. We're in chapter 14. We're continuing in that chapter. Um, you'll remember that last week we started this fourth great theme of Revelation, which is the the final judgment, the judgment of the earth and its inhabitants. This is not just limited to this section of Revelation, but rather this is a theme that, that permeates the entire book. Um, but it really finds prominence beginning in chapter 14 and through about chapter 20. Um, and it is about that time when God comes to judge the living and the dead. And this is, I mean, I mean we talk about this every Sunday when we say the Apostles' Creed. You know, that we will, you know, that, you know, we believe that God will come to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. And so this was one of our, our core beliefs. Um, but what are we talking about? Well, as we get into chapter 14, we're going to discuss how that, how that falls out. Uh, last week, we talked about the 144,000, and we ended on that note of hope that, that indeed God's grace is so broad and it is so full that there will be a huge number from every tribe, every nation that will be gathered to him and will have the mark of the lamb upon them and they will live with him for eternity. That those who have suffered will be redeemed and those who have given their lives to Christ will be blessed and will be, will be, uh, will be saved by his precious blood. And so we do know, we know that part, but today as we get into chapter 14, we're talking about the, you know, the beginnings or, or the, really today we're talking about the announcement of the judgment to come, because what we're going to be talking about is the is the the revelation, if you will, or the message, the warnings about the judgment to come that come from three angels, and then we will begin to, and then they will begin to describe the actual judgment itself. Um, and so let's get into that. As we get into that. Um, I want to uh, I want to say that one of the things we're going to do today is we're going to kind of go back to some of the things that I talked about at the very beginning of this course. If you remember, I, I mentioned that there are four sort of general schools of interpretation for how how people interpret Revelation. They're they're called the Preterist school, the Futurist school, the Spiritualist school, and the uh, and the Historicist school. The Preterist school is uh, you know kind of on the more liberal end of the spectrum, and they believe that um, that not just this prophecy, but most prophecy is really sort of history written in reverse. And the idea is, is that uh, for, for the preterists is that everything that happens in Revelation has already happened, maybe with the exception of the second coming of Christ, if that's even a real thing. The idea is, is that everything you read in Revelation is code for persecutions that, that, the, uh, that the Christians in John's time were at that time currently enduring and that the great calamities describe things like the destruction of Jerusalem and all those things that had happened in the recent past for the early Christians. So that's one school. The second school is the futurist school. If the preterists believe that it all took place primarily in the past, the futurists believe that it's all in the future. That, you know, that with the exception of chapter 12, which describes the, uh, describes the birth of Christ in, in flashback, the rest of it is all future. This is the Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth, dispensationalist, dispensationalist idea that it's all in the future. The, the spiritualist school is the one that says, you know what, none of this is literal or most of this is not literal, what it really is talking about is, is spiritual things that are happening in the life of every believer. So it's like it, there isn't going to ever be a, a great tribulation. Rather, all of us, you know, we each have tribulations in our lives. And maybe your great tribulation was the loss of a friend or cancer or was, uh, you know, a battle, you know, a, a, a battle in losing your job or something like that. And, you know, maybe your the judgment was a time when you had to make a really hard decision. Um, you know, so so it's really about kind of applying these metaphors to our lives. And that's really the basic and only meaning. And then you have the you have the what's called the historicist school. And the historicist school is a very interesting one, but it's one that has a very sh short shelf life because the historicist school takes my perspective where I am right now and says, these things are past, these things are future, but these, these things that Revelation describes describe specific people or places or events. 
So for example, the historicist would look at Revelation and maybe say something along the lines of, well, clearly Hitler was the Antichrist. Um, and that everything that, you know, the tribulations were the rise of the Nazis and the Holocaust and all those sorts of things. What's the problem with that school of thought? Well, if Hitler was the Antichrist, where's Christ? Where's the, where's the coming? Where, you know, how does that work? I mean, and you know, it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter where you land it. In the Middle Ages, there were people who thought that, um, that the Antichrist was, um, was, for example, Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun or that he was Caesar, or that he was, you know, there were, there were plenty of people who thought that Henry VIII was the Antichrist. I mean, the, the, people at, the people in Rome thought that Henry VIII was the Antichrist. They also thought that Luther was the Antichrist. At the same time, Luther was declaring that the Pope was the Antichrist. I mean, it was, I mean, you, you, you get the sense that, that these things get pretty dated pretty quickly. Because if you say somebody else is the Antichrist, and then all of a sudden Christ doesn't show up for a while, or, or never, um, then you start to realize, well, maybe I had that wrong. And so the historicist school, even though it is very limited, it tends to be very popular, but it's also a very interesting lens through which to read some of the things that we're going to read today. And so I'm going to maybe highlight a little bit of that more than I usually do. Um, I, I want to say that, you know, my approach, and I think that most people today, after 2,000 years of experience with this, is to, is to say, you know, it's obviously a hybrid of all these. There are spiritual elements to it. There are certainly things that happened in the past. There are certainly things that are going to happen in the future. And there are probably some historical references in here that are specific. The problem is, you know, we're left to sort all of this out. And, and it's only God who's going to really be able to give us the final answer key, the final cipher to all of this. So we're going to be looking at that historicist school a little bit today. Let's jump into it. Um, verse 6 begins a section about three angels bringing a revelation to the church. Now, as we get into this, this reading, I want you to remember that the key to understanding this, this passage is understanding that an angel in its basic duty is a messenger. The word angel, angelos, means messenger. And so what we have here is is a group of angels, three angels, who are exercising their primary function of news tellers, of announcers, of heralds, of messengers. They are coming to bring us a message. And the first angel in verses six through seven is the messenger that tells about the truth of the gospel being set loose in the world. Let's read it, verse six. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. What we see and what we hear from this angel is that the gospel having been born to the woman, having been saved from the dragon is now set loose upon the earth and for the first time, people are truly hearing about the mercy and good news of God. The, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are the words that Jesus used when he began his public ministry in Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. This angel is here to say that that message that Jesus proclaimed, that the church has proclaimed, is finally getting out to every nation, tribe, and tongue. We are seeing in this verse, the angel is announcing that the great commission is being fulfilled. Now, it's interesting to, to think about this and to look at this in terms of a historicist lens because the historicists of history had very specific ideas about what this angel was talking about, particularly when they got to the, when, when they were interpreting this passage in and around the 1500s and 1600s, the, the 15th, 16th, 17th century. Because one very prominent interpretation of these words is that this angel represents the Reformation and the world mission movement. Again, this is describing, we believe, a, 
you know, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, that the word of God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is getting out to every tribe, nation, and tongue. Well, when did that happen? Well, of course, the Protestant understanding of this was that that started in the Reformation. The Reformation began with the unleashing of the good news to all the world. We think about Martin Luther as the one who nailed his 95 theses, his 95 uh, propositions for argument up onto the Wittenberg door and, and, and by that action started a debate that then began the Reformation. Well, the Reformation had been percolating for a while before then. And, and, and the 95 theses, as important as they were, were not really even the most important thing that Luther did or his most important contribution to the Reformation. I would say, and I think I'd be in good company to say, that Luther's most important contribution to the Reformation was not nailing his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. It was rather in translating the Bible from Latin into German, or more appropriately, from Latin into the vernacular. Because up until that point, it was not only exceptionally rare, it was illegal in many places to have a Bible written in anything other than Latin. Now imagine if you had a Greek or a Hebrew Bible that might have been suspicious, but you know the real only official one you were supposed to have, if you could even afford one on your own, was a Latin Bible. And that's really what got people upset with Luther. That's really what got him crossways with the Catholic Church of, of, the, of the Middle Ages, was the fact that when, when he translated the Bible and then when it started to be printed, well, then all of a sudden, the church, the curia, the clergy started wondering, well, what do they need us for? And if they can, if people can read the Bible for themselves, then we can't spin it our way because they would start reading the Bible and they'd start saying, oh, wait a minute, there's, yeah, there's stuff about judgment in here, but there's an awful lot in here about grace. And there's a lot about obedience, but there's an awful lot about love. And there's a lot about, uh, you know, there, there's a lot about uh, authority, but there's also a lot about worship and the, and there's a, you know yes there's a stuff a lot about good works but that's as a response to grace and wait a minute what is this i don't i'm not saved because a priest says i'm forgiven i'm saved because jesus christ gave his life for me and i have a direct relationship with him you mean i can talk directly to god you mean the pope's not infallible that's not in the bible wait i, I can't find that thing about purgatory where is it when they started to put out the, when the Bible started to come out in the vernacular, it unleashed the gospel. So much so that it terrified the institutional church. Because as long as they could control the Bible and control access to the Word of God, they could control the whole show. And so when, when the Bible was released into the world, not only did it expose people to the Word of God, but it made them start to learn how to read, increase literacy and everything like that. Luther's German Bible was actually the document that systematized written German. There really wasn't a standardized grammar or written form of German before Luther's Bible. It became sort of the backbone of that. And so, um, and so it just begins to elevate all kinds of things. Now, the threat... The church said, well, if you start giving people the Bible, you're just going to multiply heresy. You know, people are going to start reading it for their own. For their own. They're going to start misinterpreting it, and they're, going to, they're not going to understand what they read. And Luther said, you're right, but they'll also discover the grace of Jesus Christ, just as he did, because he did know Latin, and he had read the Bible, and he had started to see these inconsistencies long before he translated the Bible, and he felt like everybody deserved to know the gospel straight from the source. And so this is the unleashing of the gospel. So there were a lot of reformed theologians who believed that this first angel represents Luther and the Reformations. Now, Catholic scholars, Roman Catholic scholars in the Middle Ages, they did not believe that. <laughs> that is not how they interpreted this. But, um, but that's sort of, that's, that's one definition. The other, uh, another interpretation um, and again, this is where the historicist school is a lot of fun. Um, Adam Clark, who was, in a, who was a uh, British commentator, 
equated this uh, equated this angel with the great mission movements of the uh, of the 18th and 19th centuries, particularly the mission movement of the of the English Bible Society. So after the Bible had been translated into German and English and all these things, all these missionaries started carrying it all over the world to Africa, to China, to, to, uh, to India, to, to Latin America, all these places where all these indigenous peoples who'd never heard of the gospel could hear about it. You have this, these incredible mission movements going all over the world. And, and the people of the 18th and 19th centuries looked at that and they said, see the great commissions being fulfilled. This is the prophecy of the first angel of Revelation 14. This, we're seeing scripture illuminated before our eyes. And that's what they thought was happening. And I'm not saying it isn't, but it's kind of like the tribulations. You know, is it the tribulation or is it a tribulation? I mean, I think, you know, is the, was the Great Commission being fulfilled at that point? Yes. In the Reformation and the Mission Movement? Absolutely. Is that this angel? I'm, I'm not going to speculate on that. You really don't know till Christ comes and confirms it all. But we do see in those great movements, the gospel moving out. And that's what this first angel represents is the gospel moving out into all the world, going beyond the, confi the confines of Jewish Christianity, beyond the confines of, of the great Mediterranean, Greco-Roman uh, world, beyond the confines of Northern Europe, beyond the confines of the West, beyond, uh, into all the world, every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, while we would take this for granted, if you told someone a hundred years before Luther that this was going to happen, they would think that was insane. You know, the only way they could convert people at that point, they thought was through crusades and stuff like that. It's the one-on-one -on -one teaching. The whole idea of spreading the Bible all over the world, that was, that was beyond hope. But then it happened. The second angel, let's look at verse eight. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. All right, now we're talking. <laughs> now we're getting into the PG stuff again. Here we go. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Okay, that's getting a little racy. It's getting a little PG-13. But we now should understand as, we've, as we're in the 14th chapter of Revelation that these things have deeper meaning. First of all, Babylon the great, um, the, the historicists tended to, you know, tended to associate this with a specific physical, political, historical referent. And that referent was Rome. So if you believe that the first angel is Martin Luther, then the Babylon that is knocked down is what? It's Rome. It's the Roman Catholic Church. It's the medieval, it's, 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 the, it's the seat of, of the Pope. And so what we see here is, is, you know, by way of illustration, as the gospel goes out, it knocks over the idols and the systems that have generationed imprisoned people and defied God. It begins to knock down the falsehoods of paganism, the falsehoods of false religion, the lies of the counterfeit trinity. It takes all of those idols and begins to smash them just under the weight of the gospel. It reminds me of the story from 1 Samuel of when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they took it back to their city and, they, and, and to humiliate the Jews, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they placed it in the temple of Dagon at the feet of Dagon, their God. And when they, they, they put it there, they said all kinds of blasphemies, they did all kinds of stuff. And then they left, you know, because they were finished partying for the night and they left and they came back the next morning and the statue of Dagon has collapsed before the ark, prostrate in obeisance. The whole idea here is that, is that the gospel, as it goes out, just starts knocking down these paper, these, these faults, these, you know, these brittle nothing religions that are nothing but disguises for demons. Babylon the Great is pagan culture. Pagan culture that is finally being unmasked for what it is by the true gospel. Now, what does that mean? Now, how does that relate to the sexual immorality? Well, 
those lies of the devil, those falsehoods referred to in Romans chapter 1, where they traded the truth of the invisible God for images of birds and beasts and all manner of living things, where they gave themselves over to the lust of their heart and all those sorts of things. Those are the things that have, that have led people into adultery with God. I mean, again, look at Romans chapter 1. God said, uh, Paul says that, that, you know, even though God had left more than enough evidence of himself in the world, people still turned to idols and worshiped things. They put the created things in the place of the creator. And that led them to lust. It led them to perversion. It led them to murder. It led them to malice. It led them to greed. Because we don't build idols that challenge us. We build idols that we want to endorse us. And so the human heart, which Karl Barth described as a factory of idols, taking, out, taking words also from Calvin, he said, you know, they said, you know, our hearts just create, we manufacture idols. And rather than admitting and rather than acknowledging and taking seriously that we are made in the image of God, we make God in our image so that our God doesn't challenge us, doesn't defy us, doesn't restrict us. Rather, our God endorses us. The idea with a pagan idol is that I've taken some aspect of me or you and I want you to worship it. So whoever is the strongest somehow makes an idol of himself or herself or some fear or something like that. And you know, an idol can be a manifestation of a fear. It doesn't have to be something we endorse. But, um, but the whole idea is it's something out of me that I create to sort of set it over there. And then, and then we follow it. It's, it's kind of like Isaiah says, you make, you make these idols of, you make the idol of gold and then you bow to it. You make the idol of wood and then you bow to it. Why do you do that? That makes no sense. You're the one who made it. You're the one who chopped down the tree. You're the one who carved it. Why do you, why do you worship this? And it's the truth that sets us free from the, from the lies of the systems that we build around these idols. I mean, take, for example, if you, you know, if you believe that your God requires blood human sacrifice. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell you that. The, you know, God hasn't told you that. But if you believe that that's the way to assuage your God so your, your crops come in for whatever bizarre reason Satan has whispered in your ear, then you start a system, you start a cycle of human sacrifice. And the gospel comes along to break that idol down to set you free from that to set you free from the, from the understanding that you have to live in fear of that thing, that you have to live in fear of that situation, that you have to live in fear of whatever it is. The gospel sets us free from pagan superstition. And so the second angel is the, is the understanding that the counterfeit trinity is defeated or will be defeated. This hadn't happened yet. These are announcements. Um, again, why, why sexual immorality? Why, why is that the reference? Because sexual immorality is, you know, is time and time a symbol of infidelity to God. Think back to Hosea. When Hosea, uh, you know, when, when God portrays Israel as a, an unfaithful wife, as a harlot, an adulterous wife, the whole idea is that the, God's creation, God's people are cheating on him with another God. And now we, and, and now we see that that too will fall, that eventually that, that worship will be rendered for what it is, which is nothing. The worship of a false God is ultimately nothing. And so that's the second angel. The third angel will be taught, is pointing forward to the next thing that's going to happen. Let's look at that. Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or, an, or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and suffer in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of, of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the day who blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed, says the Lord, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So the first angel is predicting or is, is sending a message about the triumph and the spread of the gospel. The second is talking about the destruction of the counterfeit trinity and false worship. The third is now coming to announce the judgment itself. And it's, it's so critical that we not turn our eyes from this next few chapters. And here's why. Because if we do not take the judgment seriously, then we do not take grace seriously. If we do not take sin seriously, then we do not take salvation seriously. Because most people have a sense that, you know what, God's cool with us, everything's going to be fine, we'll just go along, get along, I'll do some good things, I'll do some bad things, um, but nobody's perfect, but God loves me, and hey, it's going to all be all right in the end. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that we are sinners, that we are rightly and justly condemned by God. And without Jesus Christ, we are doomed. It's not, we do not get ourselves in trouble. We're already there. What we need is Jesus Christ to get us out. And what this angel is telling is that that judgment is coming. That those who rely on themselves, who rely on the beast, who rely on anything but Christ for their salvation, they are the ones who are going to suffer torment, not just once, not just for a while, but forever. What that means is that those who are judged and who are found on the side of the counterfeit trinity or not on the side of Christ... That means that they will not be annihilated. They will suffer forever. There is no existence apart from God. They will suffer forever. But on the other hand, he also says to those who have, who have trusted in Christ for their salvation, who have trusted in Christ for their hope, that you will endure. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds do follow them. That's, I say that at every funeral, every time I bury someone. You know, blessed are they who die in the Lord. From henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, they rest from their labors and their works do follow them. What does that mean? It means that those who die in the Lord, even if you died a horrible death, even if it seemed like a useless death, a wasted death, even if it seems like, you, like it was all in vain, this angel is saying, hang on. Everyone who dies in Christ, you will understand truth. You will understand glory. You will see that your life was not for nothing. It was not worthless. Yes, everything under the sun is vanity. Vanity, vanity. Everything goes, goes, what goes around comes around. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. But under God, says Ecclesiastes, there is hope, there is truth, there is meaning. It's not all vanity. And so whether you live a comfortable life as a Christian and never are really challenged, never suffer any pain, or whether you die a horrible martyr's death in some place like China or Afghanistan, your life was not meaningless because your life is in the life of Jesus Christ and his life was not meaningless. And so what this last angel is doing is he is setting up the contrast. He is setting up once again to confirm you have those who are trusting the beast and anything else for their salvation and you have those who have trusted Christ for their salvation. And God is coming to judge between those two. Now, it's important, that, and, I, and I don't want to overmake this point, but I do want to make this point. That 
It's not just about rebelling against God in the sense of becoming a Satanist or becoming a cultist or becoming a magician or an astrologer or something like that. It's enough just to ignore Christ. You know, it, it's not that we don't follow the devil. It's that we don't follow Christ. That's the, that's the important thing. You know, you may have heard me say this, that most people believe in the gospel of the other guy. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? It's the, it's the gospel, it's the belief that most, that most people operate under, which is this. Hey, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. As long as there is somebody worse than me, I'm okay. It's kind of like the old bear in the woods joke. You know, how fast do you have to be to outrun a bear? Just faster than you. <laughs> I don't have to be fast enough to outrun a bear. I just have to be faster than you. There's so many people who operate under the assumption that, well, I don't, it doesn't matter if I'm not perfect. I'm not all that bad. It's not about whether you're good or bad. It's about whether or not you're saved. It's about whether or not you have the name of Jesus Christ written on your forehead. It's whether or not you belong to him. It's not something else. And it's not Jesus and anything else. It's just Jesus, the name of Christ written on your forehead. And the angel is coming to say there is going to be this separation. And so let's look, at the, let's look at that separation for a second. He describes it in this, in this next passage as a great harvest. The harvest of the earth and the great winepress. Verse 14, And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Now there are a lot of people who read this passage and think, oh, the judgment has come. This is the grim reaper. And they're right. The judgment has come, but this is not the grim reaper. Who is this reaper? Who is this man with the sickle, this one like the son of man with the sickle in his hand, sitting on a crowd, wearing a, wearing a crown? This is Christ. And what is he coming to do? He's coming to bring in the sheaves. He is coming to collect the fruit of God's harvest. The, you know, Dare we say, only for the mercy of Christ, we are the sheaves, we are the shoots, the wheat, we are the grain that he is bringing in by the mercy of Christ, not because of our own. But what he is saying is that here, he sees Christ himself who is now coming to collect his own. It is now fully bloomed, full fruit, fully grown. And it is time to bring it in. There's so many references to this throughout Scripture. We think about the threshing floor of David where the wheat is separated from the, from the chaff. And we see Christ coming in. Not, I mean, this is not a sickle that is designed to, you know, to destroy us. This is a sickle that's designed to harvest us. And, you know, and, and I don't even think it's necessarily... I don't think we even take it this way most of the time, but I, I was really struck by this as I was thinking about um, what Jesus said in, in chapter 9 when, when we hear the thing where he says that the field is white with the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Who is the Lord of the harvest? It's God. What is this harvest? It is the bringing home of his people. You know, we've, we, have this, we, we only have the image of the grim reaper as the one who comes to cut us off from life. But what we see in Jesus Christ is he's the one who comes to cut us free for life. To do that, what we, that which we were called to do. Wheat that just stays out in the field is just grass. Wheat that's harvested is filling and nourishing and it's, it is that which blesses. And so this is the great harvest of the Lord. This is him bringing in the sheaves. This is us rejoicing when he's bringing in the sheaves. That hymn 
is not about harvest time on earth. It's not just some pagan recycling of, of, uh, you know, of a fall theme. This is revelation talk that God is going to bring in his people. But that's not the only reaper. We look at the next, uh, we look at the next uh, verse, uh, next, chap, uh, next few verses, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Taking that into contemporary measurements, that would mean a lake of approximately 184 miles, uh, square miles, five feet deep of blood. So this is the grim, this is the gory side of the judgment. On the one hand is Christ bringing in the sheaves. On the other are those who've rejected Christ, who have trusted in the beast, who've trusted the Antichrist and his spirit. And they're not brought into harvest. They are squeezed, they are crushed in the winepress of God's wrath. And thus Steinbeck has his novel title, The Grapes of Wrath. You know, these are, these are the ones that suffer. These are the ones who die without the Lord. And it is brutal. It is gory. It would not, uh, it would not warrant a rated G uh, provision by the American Film Institute. This would, this would rate a PG-13 at the, at the lowest because this is intended to be scary. Because until we take sin seriously, until we take God's judgment seriously, we are not going to take His mercy seriously. We go through life expecting God's mercy, even those of us who grew up in the church, expecting that God's mercy is an entitlement that we may sue for God's mercy in any way other than in Jesus Christ. Forgetting the sin that we have committed and the ways that we have offended him and hurt our brothers and sisters. But we have to remember that God is a God of justice. And the sins that we perpetrate on one another matter to God because the people against whom we sin matter to God. If one of your kids beats up another one of your kids or if somebody were to harm your child, wouldn't that make you angry? Wouldn't you feel like, you know, if I don't get justice, if he doesn't get justice, then that's like saying that he doesn't matter. God's own character matters. Blasphemy against him matters. And so... It is, you know, and so it's going to come out one way or another. Either Christ's blood will be spilled for us, or it'll be our own. One way or the other, one way or another, blood will be spilled. Is it going to be Christ's blood for you and me? Or is it going to be my blood for you and me? You see why I say all the time that he lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we could never endure? Christ survives because he is the sinless son of God. This is the end for, for us, if it's us. This is the end for those who are crushed in the wine press. And people might say... Bob, I don't like this. I started coming to church again after years. You know, I heard all this fire and brimstone stuff when I was a kid. I heard all this judgment stuff when I was a kid. When I was a kid. And I, I've stayed away from church for a long time because I didn't want to hear that stuff anymore. And I was tired of it. And I, you know, I, I, I wasn't expecting that. And I didn't want that from you. And I thought we were past all that as Christians. 
Well, we're not. Because the Bible's not. Because this is the truth. And what this angel is doing, what these angels are doing, is they are saying, look, you can either trust Christ and live, be brought in with the harvest of, of the grain, or you can trust something, anything, anyone else, and be crushed and suffer for the sins that you have committed and that you deserve. Because let's be honest, we all know that we've rebelled against God. We all know that we have hurt other people. And we all know that we've done it to our advantage. We've manipulated, we've done all these things. We know that we are sinners. And so again, the question before us is, are we going to trust Christ for our salvation? Are we going to roll the dice and put it on ourselves and hope that I'm okay or that that other guy is a distraction? It's kind of like this. We need to, well, we need to hear the truth, and it's kind of like this. You know, I go into my doctor, and he can look at my blood work, and he could say, everything's great. You're a nice guy, Bob. You're likable. You're fun at parties. You know what? Go home and have a good day. And I die the next night of a heart attack. Or he could tell me, Bob, we need to have a very serious conversation or you're going to die. Which is more loving? I can close my book, I can close my Bible, and I can say, I can do it, you know, I could do it literally, I could do it figuratively, and I could say, you know what? They used to believe all this back then, but we don't believe it now. God's Word said all that stuff, but we know better now. And I'd be like that doctor saying, you're going to be fine. But I'd be a liar. I would be a liar and I would be part of the beastly system. Christ does not tell us this story. Christ does not show us these images because he wants to scare us in the sense of terrorize us. He wants us to wake up. So much of Revelation up to this point has been a wake-up call. You know, we'll listen to our doctors when they say, you need to cut out some salt in your diet. You need to take your diet more seriously. You need to take your exercise more seriously. But do we take it seriously when Christ says, you need to take my father more seriously. You need to take your brothers and sisters more seriously. You need to take me more seriously. That's what he's been leading up to this whole time. So here is that, that warning. And really, it's kind of the last warning before the judgment itself takes place. I mean, we've had up to this point, we've had, we've had the seals. We've had the, we've had the trumpets. We've had the woes. We've had all manner of warnings and wake up calls. And here once again is, is a set of three angels who come in to say the gospels come. The devil has been proven worthless and now is the time for the judgment. What are you going to believe? What are you going to do? You know, and, and not to you know not to stretch this too far, but um, last night in the in, in our uh, in our Wednesday night study, somebody asked me the question. You know, essentially it was an application question. They were like, you know, because I'd mentioned that line that I often say in funerals. I said, well, you know, Bob, do you ever talk about this stuff in a funeral? And it was a great question. It was like, have I ever really talked about revelation in a funeral? And I don't, you know, I don't think I specifically have. Maybe I, I probably have once or twice for somebody who was really a student of it. But one of the things I always say, and, and if you've been to one of my funerals, you will see this, and you may have thought, oh, well, he's just sort of repetitive. But, but this is intentional. One of the stories that I tell in every funeral that I do, every eulogy that I do, is a story of Jesus and the, and the sisters of Lazarus. After Lazarus has died, he meets up with Mary and Martha on the way. He's four days late. Lazarus is dead. And Mary and Martha challenge him on the road. And they say, they say, Lord, if you had only been here, our brother would not have died. 
And Jesus, who has lost one of his best friends, says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall have eternal life. And, you know, and we can, we can almost, we, we can forgive these two grief-stricken sisters in their desperation coming to him and saying, you could have done something. Why didn't you do something? Challenging him. But we don't expect the polite thing for him to do is just so, to absorb it, to say, yeah, 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 I'm so sorry. You're right, I could have. And instead, he says, not only I am the resurrection and the life, he who, die, who believes in me shall never die, and he, whosoever lives and believes in me shall have eternal life. And then he puts the question back on them, do you believe this? I mean, that's an awkward moment. They're saying, why didn't you do something? He's like, why didn't you do something? Do you believe this? Do you trust me? What's happening in that moment is the same thing that's happening here. In that moment, he is challenging them in the moment of a death of an individual, not just at the end of time, to say, I'm the one in whom life is found. Do you believe that? Which side are you going to fall on? Are you one of the sheaves? Or are you one of the, one of the grapes? Stalker of fruit? Which are you? Are you going to be harvested or are you going to be squeezed? Crushed. Even Jesus put that question to people, not because he was trying to bully them, but because he was trying to awaken them. And to awaken them with hope. He didn't say, without me, Lazarus is damned. He said, with me, Lazarus has life. And then what did he do? He raised him from the dead. Revelation is not trying to terrify us, but it is trying to awaken us. It's trying to help us to understand that we must take seriously both the judgment and the mercy of God. So next week, we will continue this fourth theme. And we'll get into even more specifics. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for giving us this time together. Thank you for once again awakening us to your truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you all for coming out on a bleak, gloomy, wet, cold, wonderful winter day. I let you know again. I'm a I'm a four season guy, so I don't mind it. But please be careful going home. Love you very much.